What's up everyone, John here. I want to apologize for a slight audio distortion in this episode. We had some technical difficulties, but as the episode goes on, it kind of clears up for the most part. So thanks for bearing with me and please enjoy the episode. In the public imaginary, there's often a sense that you have a kind of spectrum. Um, and on one end of the spectrum, you have a kind of libertarian or, or neoliberal or hyper neoliberal capitalism. Um, and the more state power, in other words, the more government you add, the, the further left you move. And at some point you reach kind of social democracy and you keep going a little bit further. And then at some point you reach um, communism. You are now listening to Beyond the Fourth Wall of Writing with your host, John Robinson IV. Here we smash walls, demolish writer's blocks, and learn how to harness the true power of storytelling. Let's get it cracking. Joe Lindsay Walton is author and editor of several works of fiction and poetry, including Meet Me in the Tall Grass and Francis Crott. He is also an editor for Vector Magazine of the British Sci-Fi Association. While not an economist by trade, Joe studies economics and economists to a meticulous degree and has a unique talent for melding economy and science fiction to create interesting angles from which to tell stories. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Beyond the Fourth Wall podcast. And today I am here interviewing Mr. Joe Lindsay Watson from the UK. What's going on? Hey, what's up? Hey, so on this podcast, we're going to be talking about something that I think is extremely unique when it comes to writing. I don't think very many people have talked about this. I haven't found anybody else on the internet who has really gone as in-depth as Joe. Uh, I mean, the internet's a big place, but I'm telling you that when I read Joe's stuff from the past, I was blown away. So I had to reach out. Uh, so yeah, I think that we are going to dive deeper than most on the topic of economics and fiction. Economics and writing, economics and fiction in general. Uh, and I, I don't know. I, I think it's just one of those things that often gets overlooked in storytelling. Um, it's not something that necessarily has to be bolstered up, uh, to the, to the top, but I, I do think that it is one of those things that can definitely enhance your writing if you do choose to focus on it. So, um, so yeah, this is Joe. Joe, do you want to kind of tell people a little bit about what you, uh, what you do? Um, yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to to be here. Um, I am a co-editor, along with Polina Levanton, of Vector, which is the critical journal of the British Science Fiction Association. And I'm also a writer of some, some fantasy, some science fiction, um, some poetry, and I'm an editor of Bits and Pieces, and I'm an academic researcher, and a, a lot of my research concerns economics and literature. And that's me. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm super glad uh, to have you on here. Uh, thanks again for uh, responding, you know. Sometimes looking for interviews could be tough, and um, yeah, you, you, you were pretty prompt with the response. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I kind of want to figure out, uh, before we even get into the writing aspect because this is kind of a murky area for a lot of people who don't uh i guess study the topic on a regular basis but i kind of i kind of want to figure out in your own words how would you define economics mm, okay um well i think it's a pretty murky topic for people who do study it as well um i'm not an economist so i should probably say that right up front um and, you know, there are a bunch of definitions out there. There's there's one that is quite influential in the kind of early early part of the 20th century. Lionel Robbins calls economics a science, which is already maybe wrong, but um, he calls economics a science which studies human behavior as a relationship between means and ends, and specifically means that are limited and have alternative possible uses. And I think that's a... I think it's an interesting and a, a fruitful definition, and it's kind of um, been, been very influential. It's sometimes nowadays 
trimmed a little bit. You might hear something like um, economics is the study of finite resources and infinite human wants, which might, from a kind of writing perspective, sound a little bit catchier, a little bit snappier. I think it actually loses some of what's subtle and useful about the original definition. And I think, as often happens in economics, it also kind of smuggles in some assumptions that you might not be completely uh, comfortable with, right? So if economics is the study of finite resources and infinite human wants, that implies that human wants are infinite. Well, are they infinite? I don't know. Are, are your wants infinite? John, do you, do you, do you want infinitely? Uh, I, I don't think so, personally. I mean, I may be a more modest person yeah, for the question. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 think, I, I don't think I want infinitely. I, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't had kind of infinite stuff. Maybe I would like it. Maybe I do want infinitely. Um, and the, the other bit of that definition kind of troubles me a little bit as well, the, the idea that we kind of have to look at all the objects of study of economics as resources. And if we think that, um, you know, some of the stuff that goes on in the economy is things like work, uh, uh, not just paid work as well, the kind of, um, you know, the, the, the work of homemaking, um, uh, the work of kind of caring for one another, that's all kind of part of economics. Do we really want to think about this, the stuff that, that people do always and solely as a resource? Um, you know, and I think, uh, so, so I think there's kind of troubles with, with that version, uh, that version of, of uh, what economics is, what economics is about. Uh, another way of looking at economics might be that it's, it's about kind of production, it's about distribution, and it's about production of goods and services. It's about how we make stuff. It's about the stuff that we do, whether it's classified as work or not. Um, and increasingly, it's also about kind of what happens before and after and around those processes. So not just how do we make stuff, but where do we extract the stuff that we make the stuff out of? Um, and where does the waste go? Where does the, you know, where does the carbon go? Um, so I think, you know, those are, those are some kind of ways to, to start thinking about what economics is. And, and obviously it's broad, um, but it will, you know, it, it will give you a route into it. If I was to offer kind of my own definition, uh, I might go with something a little bit weird, something kind of provocative that probably not that many economists would, would agree with. Um, I might say something like economics is a deep study of decisions. So where do decisions arise in society? Where don't they arise? Who gets to decide? What gets decided by humans and what gets decided by institutions and processes? And how are decisions coordinated so that we can achieve things that are greater than the sum of our parts? And then how do decisions fail to get properly coordinated so that we end up having unintended consequences? Um, so right now, unintended consequences, the ecological crisis being, being yeah, a big that, one. That, that, sound, that sounds a um, whole lot like... I, I can keep That sounds going. a whole lot like... Um, your definition sounds a whole lot like like the almost the study of power and power structure. That is a really, really interesting way of, of putting it, actually. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I feel like who defines the rules of economics? Who defines value? You know, value is like power in itself, you know, in my head. Um, if you can place a value on something, if I say that this diamond is worth this much money and, and I can inspire that sense of value in this thing in, you know, across the masses and everybody's scrambling for that thing that you have that they don't have, then that gives you a certain level of power, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the word value is super interesting and it combines at least three senses. Um, there's, there's value as a kind of numeric value. Um, there's value as a, uh, you know, when we speak of our values, our, our, our views, our, our moral and our political and ideological commitments. Um, and then there's value in, in the kind of the sense of data, right? Like the, a, a string could be a value. Um, and those three senses are merged, really, when we think about what economic value is. And yes, it definitely does confer power onto things. Um, to say that something has value is to say that it is embedded in a system of power in, in a particular way. Um, yeah, this, you know, that's, that's something I think that, that Marx, Karl Marx looks at in the, the first bit of Das Kapital, the bit that people read before they, they give up. Um, when he talks about commodity, 
talks about how um, uh, you know objects, commodities in the world kind of take on this mystical, ghastly power. Um, and that power is, is essentially its economic value. And what really underlies that is the social relationships amongst people um, and the kind of power relations amongst people. But because of the system that we live in, it appears to be a property of the object itself. And you could say this would be, you know, a slight divergence from, from Marx's specific terminology. But you could say that, yeah, that's value. Right, right. Absolutely. And I, I think... Right. I think wow, I like I like how we already got into how how economics. Yeah, I know. I was like, don't mention Marx. Don't mention Marx. <laughs> no, no. I, I I love how economics is already, you know, like kind of covertly moved over to power structure, you know, <laughs> which kind of yeah. leads into how and why. Like, I mean, there's already so many more aspects that we usually that we even think about when we think about the word economics. I mean, we, you know, before we dive into any discussion about it, we're just like, oh, that's that's economics is money, right? It's just it's money, and we need money to yeah. you know to give things to people and, and and get things in return, you know. But then when you really dive into that and you think about well, if this establishes a, a, a hierarchy of power or if this establishes, you know, mm. uh, what value is and, and what things are valuable and what other things, you know, uh, give value to things. How do those powers, you know, give things value? You know, like it, it, it starts to get really, mm. really interesting, which is why I wanted to talk about this, you know. Uh, you know, so. So, but you're interested in talking about it from from like a, a writer's right, perspective, exactly. right? So, it, so maybe like another question is, uh, you know, for for a writer, and let's say let's concentrate on science fiction and fantasy, speculative fiction, horror stuff like that. For a writer, what would be a, a good definition of economics be? I'm asking oh, you now. For a writer, huh? <laughs> yeah. What do you? Think? Since I know nothing about this topic. Uh... <laughs> no. Okay. Okay. So I guess. I so I guess do. if you, if you're talking about in in your story, you know, you, you you're, you're mm. talking about world building, right? So one of the things I think about when it, when it comes to world building is right. I'm like, okay, so if I'm building up this this system from the ground, I'm like, okay, what's their culture? You know, um, that, I mean, shoot, mm. that question I didn't even get anywhere. That question by itself already establishes or starts to put in your mind at least a framework of the kind of economics that they they use okay are they using money are there rich are there poor is there a rich and poor crisis is there an even kind of ground type of economy is there a system of trade you know um is economics based on who has power in terms of of you know money or power in terms of actual abilities you know that's when we we get to the sci-fi and fantasy part are you know are people who have power the ones that are i mean i'm sorry the people who are i guess have high economic value are they the ones who are powerful or um conversely can they be can they be the people who are frowned upon because they have power because they're hated like uh mm-hmm. i don't know x-men or something like that you know um they have special mm-hmm. powers and people oh, yeah. treat them badly because they're jealous of the power that they mm-hmm. have you know what i mean so yeah i mean i guess i guess in storytelling when it comes down to i guess the role the economics play in storytelling it it honestly needs to be weaved into every aspect of your world building because it's going to define the kind of culture that, you know, that your world is based upon or your city or, or whatever it is, you know, at least that's the way I think about it. Yeah, definitely. Although that kind of sounds hard, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> um, hard to do. And maybe it isn't that hard. Maybe one of the things is that, you know, if you just write, if you just kind of make up a world, you're already thinking about economics, even if you don't realize that's what you're absolutely, doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, one of the things I talk about in writing on this writing podcast in the first episode, I mentioned um, writing with intention and and a lot of the time, don't get me wrong, like the organic thing is there's something magical about the organic realization of your stories, themes, or, or whatever. You know what I mean? But there comes to a certain point, like after you, after you get the organic stuff kind of like there in an amorphous blob, <laughs> there's a certain point where you're like, okay, I have got to figure out what this is. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so then you have to start defining it. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, so yeah, it's, I don't know, uh, We'll, we'll go with Hunger Games, right? Yeah, it's Hunger Games and, you know, people fight in arenas and to the death or whatever. But why? Mm-hmm. You know, who's making them fight? Okay, the rich people. Okay, so if these people 
have to fight to the, are, are, are they fighting to the death because they want to or because they're being forced to? And then, oh, okay, this is a system. Is, is this system generating money for these rich people? Does it generate money because it's the, 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 the largest form of entertainment in this society that they live in? You know, I mean, I'm just kind of like free forming it, but you know, you go, you really start to get down the rabbit hole with, okay, well, well, what 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 does the system look like? And then you want to, at some point in your in your forming of your story, you want to intentionally define that, you know? Yeah, you're talking about this kind of process of extrapolation, um, of also reverse engineering the factors that might underpin some kind of cool thing that you want to appear in your story. Um, this process of, of bringing some sort of consistency and coherence to that amorphous blob. I mean, I think get away with just an amorphous blob be like here's my blob uh and and yeah. will love it. um but yeah bring, bringing the kind of structure that you're describing is is definitely a familiar process um and some of that thinking is is economic thinking um i guess i don't know i guess i would just i i, I think my my biggest response to that is that the important thing when it comes to economics as a world builder, as an author, is just to give yourself permission. So economics can kind of feel scary. And I think some economists, not all, but some economists actually quite like that aura that it has, that kind of imposing, intimidating aura right. of expertise. Um, permission. Make things weird. Make stuff up. Absolutely. Yeah. Transparency. Create new institutions. Think you know, what if we didn't have banks? What if we didn't have um, the institution of private property? Or what if property worked in a completely different way? Make stuff up. Make it weird. It's fiction. You're allowed to. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's a, that's a <laughs> I hard... Think, I think people are afraid of getting getting it wrong. But, um, you know, economists get it wrong Absolutely. all the time. And what's their excuse? You have the most <laughs> beautiful excuse there is. You're making it exactly. up. Exactly. That's true. That's true. And I, I mean, that, that is a hard thing to think about. I remember, I remember, um, not long ago, a few months ago, I was forming up the basis of this world, you know, before I could really dive into this story, which has nothing to do really with economics. And I mean, some parts of it are, you know, the, econ the economy is important. Uh, but like, you know, when I form up my world, I'm like, I got to know how it works. Right. So, um, I had the hardest, I had the, it's a magic world and I had the hardest, uh, time with, trying to figure out where, well, okay, if there's no like hard currency, then how are these people, like, how do you, how do people pay for things? You know, if they're not just trading, you know, where do they hold, where do they store this at? You know, is it, you know, is it a, you know, and then, and then how do you secure it? Can somebody just come up and shank you and steal it? Your magical money or, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> you know, you start to think about, but you had magical, you have, you have like a kind of magical right, money. Yeah. So I that. had like these, I, I like, I didn't really think of a real name of it. I think it like, it was like wisp or something for, for, you know, for a, uh -huh a standing word or something like that and and I, I, I like you said like just now you mentioned not using a bank and i was like the, the first thing that popped in my brain was well there has to be a bank for this right <laughs> so right. i was like okay well, well what if what if people make this money even it even it is you know through their and i, I started thinking of credit cards or like a, like a hearthstone type of magical device mm -hmm. you know the money gets transfer to your account and then i was like well do they really need accounts and i'm thinking well yeah they need accounts because mm -hmm. if they don't have accounts then how do you tell what their value is you know and that's where you get because we're so used to our world and how money works and credit mm -hmm. it's so difficult to think outside of that box it's like well okay well these people want things and to get these things they need something you know so i was like okay well this guy needs money like the main character he needs money to do this thing he's trying to do I think at least, right? That's like my, that's my initial thought. I think he needs money because what other, what other thing would he need? Like he's already a powerful mage or whatever, right? You know, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, yeah. perhaps he doesn't have skills, which this gets into the value talk, right? He's a mage, but a mage isn't skilled, at least in my book. They're not skilled in everything. You know, this uh -huh. guy's a pyromancer. He knows fire and fire stuff, right? He can't. He can't create a magical cloak, for example. You know what I mean? He needs somebody else to do that. Okay. Or, you know, um, okay. so if, if I have a character who needs something, then somebody else has that thing that they need. And how is he going to get it other than trading his skills? Okay. I can make a fireball. Cool. Like, what else can you give me? <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> he make as many fireballs right. as he wants. <laughs> but what what can you give me? Like, that's his. That's his one what, thing. what can you give me of value that that kind of crosses over? So I, I kind of. I, I kind of came up with this thing called, um, and this story, uh, I kind of came up with this thing called, um, Manex, which is the extract of mana. So whenever people use magic, there's a thing, uh, like a byproduct called Manex, which is like, you know, mana, mana extract, you know. So, and it's still a working term. We'll figure it out. And is it, is it like a kind of, like a waste yes. product? Yes. It's like it, anytime anybody uses magic, this happens. However, how, how, value, how I created value, and this is before I was even thinking about, like, economics in like really extreme terms but <laughs> i guess like you said thinking about it without thinking about it right i was like to create value for this manex um the average person could not just extract that manex right you need uh an alchemist to actually extract the manex right. so alchemists are are now is now a very high value uh uh expertise right and you have to be very skilled to become an alchemist, you know? So now, okay, so you need alchemists to do that. Okay, well, if alchemists can do this and nobody else can do it, then there will be a lot of alchemists, right? You know? Um, or would there be? Now, what's the, now, what's the, now, what's the, uh, other, what's the other trade-off? It's like, okay, alchemy is hard. All right. Everybody can't, can't be alchemists, but then people have to control alchemists in some kind of way, right? Because, um, the government, of course, wants to control where this manex is going but if you have like alchemists who are doing alchemy on the side and they can you know anywhere magic happens create this manex byproduct that is the essentially your base it's like the gold coin like you know back in the day uh in america right like gold where gold everything's backed by the by gold right everything's backed by manex right you know and manex can be used essentially you know if you give it to the right person with the right skills Manix can be used for essentially anything, you know, then that value becomes redistributed uh, with the kind of skill that that person has. Right. So, like, you know, so, you know, you get you really get into the weeds with thinking about, OK, well, how do you create this value and how do you how do you create a base system? You know, and I, I never completely figured out it all the way out. This is like still in the in the stages of, <laughs> of getting worked out. But it's kind of a base process. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, it sounds like. You, the kind of thinking that you're doing there is the kind of thinking that is tremendously generative of narrative. And that's really all it needs to be. Like, it will be a continuous process of working it out, thinking about implications, thinking about what, what changes when I shift one of these factors. And maybe there's no right solution. Absolutely, right? yeah. I, I, that's kind of one of the things about fiction is you can take the same premise and you can credibly take it in many different directions. Um like you know what what happens when your alchemists get unionized for example ah, yeah. <laughs> um, or, or, or so so you 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 have these different kind of um forms of magic partitioned um one thing that strikes me is that you might have some kind of barter system um amongst your amongst your wizards uh which puts me in the mind of the <laughs> the um something that economists call the what do they call it the the problem of the double coincidence of wants. oh yeah uh let me check oh let's, yeah let's talk a little bit about that i don't I, I feel like i've heard that term before but i'm not sure exactly what it means yeah so actually the coincidence of wants is is probably a better term um and <laughs> so you know like w william stanley jevons um, is one kind of turn of 19th, 20th century economist who tells a, a very accessible and plausible story about where money actually comes from. And his idea is that, well, you imagine a kind of a, a, a small pre-modern society where everybody has a kind of specialized trade, a certain thing that they do, but they don't yet have money. So what happens is that you have created a huge number of deer skins because you're the person who's really fantastic at hunting deer and ripping their skin off. And your neighbor has created a huge number of eggs because your neighbor is the hen haver and is really good at having hens and those hens are good at having eggs. And that's perfectly fine if you need eggs at the same point as they need deer skins. But how often does that happen? So Jevons kind of paints this picture of all these 
pre-modern people wandering around in a kind of bungling fashion, desperately hoping to find somebody who needs the thing that they have at the same time as they need the thing that that person has. And eventually, at some point, they're going to settle on some commodity as a kind of medium of exchange to smooth this process. And from that, we evolve money. And it's a really fantastic, interesting story. And I think it would make a great... um, I think a great variation of it would be if you just had them all be wizards going around with their, you know, their, their pyromancer fireballs looking for somebody to exchange their fireball, but nobody wants fireballs or the person who wants fireball wants ice magic and the ice magic person wants the cloak of invisibility <laughs> right. and, and so on. The one, the one problem with Jevons' story is that it is just like the wizard's story, completely fictional. There's no historical evidence that this ever happened. Um, and that's, Fantastic, interesting. Because when we think about like, okay, how do we get things? How do we how do we swap things among ourselves? How do we exchange things? How do we do things together if we don't have money? Well, it must be this kind of highly inconvenient um, process. In history, people kind of managed to get by. Um, and how did they get by in small communities? Well, to simplify somewhat, it was very often a kind of gift economy. So, what do you do if you've got a whole bunch of deer skins? Well, you give them away. You don't need them, so you share them. And somebody gives you some eggs. And it kind of all comes out in the wash. Now, that's a slightly romanticized way of putting it. And again, you know, power comes into this. Hierarchy comes into this. Um, it's not like it was always going to be some some kind of uh, communist utopia. And there are lots and lots of different variations of this. But I think the point is that when when we think about what we would do without money, we tend to think about this kind of spot barter, which has never really occurred in history. Instead, we've generally had situations where we, you know, we, we care for our neighbors, we care for the people in our, in our communities, and we look after one another. So the person that's really fantastic on this is um, the economic anthropologist David Graeber. I would definitely recommend to any writer interested in economics his book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, and also um, his, his other books like... Um, Bullshit jobs is another nice. good one. Yeah, so like when you when you mentioned the the gift economy thing, like I, I was I, I was actually reading up on that uh, not too long ago, uh, how gift economies would work, and I, I got the sense that uh, gift giving, even though they're a gift and you don't get anything in return, technically, giving a gift mm. creates the I guess the the unspoken. Oh, factor. <laughs> you know, even though you don't say, well, you owe me, I gave you deer skins, you owe me, whatever. It, it kind of unspokenly creates this, this, uh, I guess this, oh, well, they gave me this, so I need to, of course, repay them. It's only right. You know, <laughs> you know, right. it, it happens, yeah. it happens, um, shoot, we could talk about now on, on, um, on Kickstarter, uh, comic creators on Kickstarter, <laughs> right. uh, yeah. comic creators support other comic creators and they do, they, they truly yeah. do. And not everybody always gets you back, but when somebody backs your right. book that is another creator, you automatically, no matter what, I don't care who you are, you get a sense of in your soul that, oh, wow, I need to remember when the Kickstarter comes up to make sure that that I go and I back that, yeah. you know? <laughs> so that's what, that's kind of what the gift giving yeah. thing does. It creates kind of a, you know, and not many, pe- I mean, I'm sure. Yeah. There, there'll be the uh, occasional special, uh, selfish person who just like, well, I'm not giving anybody anything just cause they gave me this. It's mine, you know, but in general, yeah. it really does create that, that feeling of, wow, I should really, you know, even if it's not a selfish thing, it's, it's, even if it's more of a, wow, I really feel good that they gave me this thing and I really want to do something for them back, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, so the, the the classic work of anthropology on that is Marcel Mauss's The Gift. Um, Claude Levi-Strauss and Derrida also write in very interesting ways about gifts, but you're you're completely right. There's this subtle and mysterious and complex aura around gift giving that enacts power in 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 lots of different ways and we've we've mostly been talking about power with kind of negative connotations and and that's fair enough um you know nobody likes to be subjugated and debated <laughs> against their will but that can be very enabling um so when somebody gives you a gift it's also you know it's quite potentially a 
powerful thing to know that you can reciprocate in some way. Um, it's a connection between two people. So <laughs> um, if, if it was, you know, if it was Christmas time and, um, and we all just kind of agreed to give one another 10, 10 pounds, you know, $10 or, or 10 Martian dollars or 10 credits, um, we know we wouldn't have done gift giving correctly, felicitously. We would have done some kind of parody of gift giving precisely because we wouldn't have invoked those subtle tendrils of emotion and social obligation and hope and perhaps also, um, you know, re re resentment and confusion and yeah, gifts. <laughs> they're, they're crazy things and you can build societies based on them. I don't think we yet understand them. So, so the thing is, okay. The thing is about gifts is that we tend to think about gift societies, um, gift economies as only working on a small scale. One of the things that I'm interested in, although I don't have a really good kind of um, line on this yet, is how gift economies work in much, much larger scale right, situations. Right. And the, the people out there with particular communities on, on Kickstarter or um, was it Kickstarter? Yes, you yes. Yeah, or, or you know, we're, we're Patreon or, or any of these kind of um, networks of mutual crowdfunding sites begins to kind of give you an insight into how that works. Um, but obviously, that's not the sharing economy. That's not Airbnb. That's not Uber, even though they sometimes help themselves to that kind of rhetoric of sharing and mutual aid. Um, they really are kind of a, a, a version, a, a souped up version of self-interested um, exchange. Right. Uh, yeah. What do you think? <laughs> so as well as far as far as gift giving, I yeah I, I think that I, I think that on a larger scale that would be interesting to try to uh, I, I guess write a story with that kind of a system. I don't really know how it would be done, but it would be yeah. something. I think it'd be fun, you know, to explore that. Um, I, I I was just thinking when you were talking about that about uh, Neil Gaiman's book. I, I guess it was a TV show too. I never saw the TV show or movie or something, but um, I was thinking about his book called uh, Neverwhere. Um, and in Neverwhere, there's a character called the uh, the Marquis de Carabas, and uh, it, and and the Marquis he does things for people, and he just says, "You owe me a favor." And that's the, mm. I mean, it's, it's not quite the same as a gift, but I loved yeah. that concept of like, he lived, like he was such, he wasn't like a over, he wasn't like a, you know, he had no like powers or, well, not more power than anybody else did. I mean, it wasn't really, it's kind of a magical world and everywhere is, but it's not really, it's like London below, you know? Um, but it, so it wasn't really yeah. a, um, I'm sorry, I kind of I kind of went quick on that. Sorry. There's London above, regular London, and then there's London below, which is like the magical version of London, right? Um, and the Marquis de Carabas can do things, or he knows people, and he has all these favors from different people. He he's kind of like a almost an information broker, and he can make things happen, mm. you know. And when he does things, he says, um, "You owe me a favor." You know, and and that's how, and then, and then later on, and throughout the book, he goes back to save himself from different situations, save other people. He, he, he calls in his favors. And, and sometimes it's from enemies, mm. you know, so it's not quite the same thing as gift giving, but right. sometimes he'll go to an enemy and it's like, well, yeah, we owe him. So, you know, and it's kind of like, there's mm. really nothing, uh, well, at least not explicitly said that is bonding them to actually fulfilling what they owe him, but they always give him back what he owes. And I loved that concept. Um, I mean, Neil Gaiman always does interesting, unconventional things in his writing. So, uh, so yeah, that, that, that's that's what I thought about when it, uh, when I was when you were just talking about the gift giving aspect. I'm I'm a big fan of his Sandman. Oh, comics. absolutely. I I haven't read another one. Yeah, but yeah, um, yeah. So so, but yeah, I think that figure of the of the gift from the supernatural. Um, is something that runs through fantastic literature. And, you know, it's like if, uh, if, if somebody appears right now in a big puff of smoke and has a kind of little pointy beard and there's a smell of brimstone and there's a kind of little pointy tail and they're like, I'll give you this, John, I'm, you know, uh, there's a, there's a really fantastic Bugatti parked right outside. It's yours. Like, no strings attached. <laughs> like, do you know? Right, right. 
I don't know. Everything costs something. Even if that cost of giving the gift is the feeling that you must give mm-hmm. back. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it's interesting. The, the language you choose there it kind of just goes to show how difficult it is to think outside. Like you said, think outside the box or, you know, think outside the discourse of an exchange-based, self-interested economy, whether that's capitalism or some, you know, some, some other form um, of economic life that's kind of based around self-interest and exchange. You know, we think of everything in terms of costs, um, but yeah, maybe we don't really have the language to describe the kind of subtle web of obligations that arises from receiving a gift from a, a a, a dodgy demon. You know, that, that, that just made me think about something that we hadn't really discussed before, but this goes, I think, I think it plays in well to, uh, stories. This is a little off script, <laughs> but, I, but, I, but I think it's a, but, but, oh, <laughs> but yeah. I think it's, okay. uh, yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, not really, but <laughs> I think it's, a, I think it's a good thing to think about. So I'm really big on, um, magic systems and I'm not really, I don't think yeah. I'm the greatest at it yet, but of course I'm still learning. I'm trying to figure it out, but I think it's important to, to try to focus on it and then to be mm-hmm. intentional about, um, and I think about cost, you know, when mm-hmm. a character throws a fireball, what does that cost them mm-hmm. to throw the fireball? Do they need fire already mm-hmm. to throw a fireball? Do they need the oxygen in the air to ignite the fireball? Do they need, uh, do they need to know a spell to throw the fireball? You know, w- whatever it is. Um, when you think about magic systems, you think about, okay, there's usually a, a prerequisite. Um, and then after that prerequisite is, is supplied, then there's usually also something that it does to you. The, the common thing, and I, I don't, don't want to say weak thing, but I guess a common thing is exhaustion, right? You, all right. You know, my, my, I was born with the power to throw fireballs. After I throw this fireball, I'm tired. I can't throw more than three fireballs. You know what I mean? Which, I mean, it could be, it could still work. I personally would like to see a different form of cost, but it, but it does work. Um, so I kind of want to ask, uh, I don't know, like, like, like you burn off a finger. Oh, each yeah, time. Well, that's a, that's <laughs> definitely a cost. <laughs> your fingers get really hot. <laughs> you have to wait for your fingers to cool down. So, I, yeah, I think that's, um, you know, wh- when you hear these absolute virtuoso magic system designers, um, you, I, I don't know his work very well, but you mentioned Brandon Sanderson oh, yes, earlier. Yes. Um, I think they do often talk in terms of like, you know, you have to think about the cost of the magic because otherwise the idea is that you're introducing something into the narrative that is going to be kind of a, a game breaker. It's going to be kind of overpowered. Right, right. right? Um, you have to balance you know, that. You don't, you don't want to, you don't want to lose your, opportunities for you don't want to lose your reader. I would, I would kind of, I don't know. I kind of want to, I kind of want to slightly mm-hmm. disagree and say that you don't necessarily have to think in terms of cost. You could just think in terms of, okay, um, this this entity this wizard this um you know this this powerful being that can do certain things they can do these certain things what are the other consequences of the things that they can do what are the unintended consequences perhaps no tool is going to be perfect for every situation so what are the things that are unintended or perhaps um understood that they will happen but unwanted and that could include costs, but it could also include a range of other things. So give them, give them magic that is in some way complicated, big, unwieldy. Um, and I think you could, you can get some, some very interesting scenarios and some very interesting stories that, out of that. That makes me um, think about a uh, recent Doctor Strange comic. Uh, I believe it was, oh, I don't want to get the, I don't want to get the right or wrong. I'm not going to say because I'm, I'm because there's been a few Doctor Strange fighters in the last couple of years. Uh, okay. Oh man, there's a name on the tip of my tongue, but I I I feel like he's he was not the one to write that at the time. I'm, I'm thinking like Jason Aaron or or Jeff Lemire, but oh, it probably was not them because Jason Aaron was also watching. He was also reading uh, or writing Thor, um, so I don't know if he was also writing Doctor Strange. But in, in any case. Um, Okay. Doctor Strange does all these crazy magic things, and it's just kind of like, all right, cool. It's Doctor Strange. You don't really think about what it costs. I mean, sometimes he sort of comes up, um, and this is not the movie. I want to we clarify that in the movie there was they had a, they had more of a, a cost system, a little bit at least. Um, but okay. in the in the books, he usually just does like crazy magic stuff. And we don't really think about what he does. Well, this writer, um, he took the idea of 
of Doctor Strange doing all these things and he applied it to a I don't know I don't even know if cost is the right term but I, I, you maybe think about this because you said other unintended co- uh, consequences and he found out basically right. that um, all these years that he's, he's been doing all this magic and not thinking about uh, the byproduct or the cost of it uh, that Wong had a whole school of monks who were taking the pain of his magic and redistributing yeah. That magic. So they were basically taking the cost that he was supposed to take. They were taking it, and they didn't tell him about this. Yeah. Um, so, so you know what? I think that a lot of magic in fantastic literature is actually a kind of estranged or allegorical version of economic. Right. Thinking, exactly. Right. So right there is, you know, you you're enjoy you, you as a kind of relatively privileged magician are enjoying this lifestyle, um, enjoying your kind of own agency in the world. And one day you have a little bit of an awakening and you realize that your agency comes from somewhere, that there are particular humans suffering who are, who's, who's, um, yeah, who, uh, whose kind of spirit is contributing to the existence that, that you lead. Um, and that's, you know, that's something that happens in economic systems. That's, that's describing in a kind of allegorical way, a pattern of exploitation right. where some people work harder, harder, maybe kind of, you know, think harder, are more imaginative in, in, um, many ways and, and kind of have that, that laboring, that life sucked away little bit by little bit to contribute to, the, the wealth and power and comfort of those at the top. Um, I think I think magic is very often thinking about economics in a kind of sidelong way. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, and that's I, I guess that's what I, I, without thinking about it, have thought about <laughs> when I when I write magic yeah. systems. You know, I think he also in, the, in that same storyline he also uh, he he ended up creating. I, I can't remember exactly how it happened. I don't know if it was them that did it, the monks, or if it was him later on after he decided to stop using the monks. But he started using his power and he trapped his power in the cellar and you know the mm-hmm. byproduct or the cost of his power that he wasn't paying for turned into a creature called misery and it became one of his greatest villains oh no, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well i mean that's what happens when you trap your magic in the cellar you create misery you become one of your greatest villains like yeah it was something like that it was, it was really great about and i really like again this is all how i mean that was magic systems, yes, but like you said, magic systems is an al- is al- you know allegory for uh, economics, and that was used in uh, fantasy, you know, Doctor Strange, um, in a very creative fashion, you know. So I think if we can intentionally think about those things, it helps us to kind of come up with interesting ideas, or or even or even even if it's not an interesting, even if the idea is like you know similar to something else, an angle to tackle it from that people wouldn't generally think of, you know. Um, I, f- I found that really fascinating in, in that particular story. Hey, this is just a random thought that's popped into my head. But you know, do you know the game Cat's Cradle, or, or like it's a kind of pastime where you have you have strings laced between your fingers, and there's a set of transformations that they go through. You kind of move your fingers in a particular way, and you get this um, a particular weave, and then you pass it to the next person. And they change it in a particular way and you get another weave. And on each iteration, you have a kind of surprising shape. I would be interested in a map that right. kind of works like that, right? So every time you cast a spell, you say you've got, you've got this one thing that you can do, this one magical power that you can exercise. And every time that you, that you use it, it iterates in such a way that you get, you kind of get a new power. And the new power is, absolutely determined by the previous power. In other words, some sort of um, process or algorithm is consistently applied to the power you just used to generate your new power. But it's complex enough that you can never really anticipate what it's going to be until you actually see it unfolding. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, wow, that that, that yeah. would be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that, that's the way I'm thinking about a, a magic system that that is that is limited and that is interesting that, that maybe gets away from from the cost paradigm. Right. And I'm sure there are other ways of doing right. it as well. Yeah. 
what if what, or, or you know like i don't know what if every time you cast your spell um it, there's a, everything kind of shifts around everything kind of shoogles and your power goes into the nearest wizard and their power is displaced into the next nearest wizard and it kind of goes in a great big carousel of um wizards and you know if that happens at just the right moment you think you're going to cast your fireball spell you lose that power at just the right moment and instead you kind of summon a badger right um, <laughs> uh, yeah um so that could be know, one, one of the one. funny limitations of uh of another comic character i'm big i'm big in the comics i have a lot of comic right uh examples yeah <laughs> um yeah so but you're you're working on you're working on um a zodiac based uh, absolutely on it, right? yeah it's called scorpio um so, so everybody has okay, like cool. uh powers based on their on their side which is kind of i guess that's sort of a limitation like they can't do just everything they've got to kind of stick yeah. to whatever their side and then each sign has their own kind of limitations uh uh, what, 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 so is Scorpio, why, why is it called Scorpio? So Scorpio, well, primarily because I'm a Scorpio. <laughs> right, so. <laughs> so with me being a Scorpio, I, I kind of started from, from that, uh, that starting point, but all the Zodiac are, are in the book and they all have their own different separate powers. Scorpios are, are shadow based. So, um, you know, oh. It's kind of based yeah. on, uh, you know, it, 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 at the base level, you basically, he is a weapon called the Sword of Shadows. And the Sword of Shadows, uh, is a, it's like a lightsaber, right? But the blade is made of shadows, you know? So, it, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, as opposed to like, you know, light and, you know. <laughs> Which is obviously. <laughs> so I have, I have, I have a couple right. questions for you. One of them is, um, what star sign is economics? Ooh. <laughs> oh. Oh. Virgo. <laughs> Virgo. Okay, cool. So my 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 next question is um in your uh in in the world that you're building, what can Aries do? Oh, so Aries has a Aries has a the basic superhero powers, <laughs> uh, which is which okay. is which is well, which is they, you kind of need it because you because nobody else has it, and when nobody else right. has it, it becomes that much more powerful, which is strength and a vulnerability that increases over time. Um, mind you, yeah. the person who has the Aries relic, um, and by the way, the Aries relic is Caliburn, um, which is another uh, an alternate name for the Excalibur. Um, okay, my, my, yeah. my final question was, uh, I totally interrupted you. What were you about to say? You, you, you were talking about a different comic. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's, okay, let's, let's recycle back around. <laughs> okay. So, um, cost. Okay, limitations of cost. Okay, that's where we're at. All right. So, kind of rewinding back to where we were, uh, the, the character, oh, Nico Monaro. That's who I was thinking of. There we go. Nico Monaro yeah, okay. from the Runaways, uh, comics and the TV show. This TV show came out a few years ago. I think they're on season four, I believe. Yeah, I mm-hmm. believe they're going to season four. Um, in any case, Nico has magic that can do anything, but she can only do anything once. And if she, oh, I love that. Right. Yeah. And if she tries to do, it's called the Staff of One, which is, I, I love the name too. Um, so the staff of one could do anything once. So she can resurrect a friend once. She can kill somebody with a, you know, with a kill mm. spell once. Uh, and then she can never use it again. If she, if she were to use it again, um, you maybe think of this because, uh, because <laughs> of your description, but if she were to try to use the same spell twice, a random factor would happen. So at one point she tried to use uh-huh. the way she found out. She tried to use, I can't remember what the spell was. She tried to use a spell a second time. I think it was freeze or something like that. And instead, a bunch of ravens mm. just popped out of her, out of her, uh, oh, right. <laughs> and they just kind of flew everywhere. And it, did, of course, didn't help them in the situation. <laughs> I'd be so happy. I'd be like, ah, ravens. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I like that. That's an example of, of, uh, I guess, I guess the, the, the cost there would be, well, you can't use it. You can only, yeah, one, <laughs> you know, or, mm. So I mean, there's a, there's an there's I guess a, a, an economic theme there, potentially economic theme. There's an interesting question about what constitutes um, a legitimate discrimination between mm-hmm. two things. So what you know, what, um, if I was to say I'm going to use um, I don't know, uh, cloud of snakes, mm-hmm. and then the next day I'm like, okay, staff of one, I'm going to do. Uh, uh, cumulonimbus serpents. <laughs> like, is, does the staff differentiate? Um, and that was, you know, that was a, that's an interesting thing the comics actually played with. She started using spells that were similar, but not 
the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Like I think at one point so she, she didn't use uh-huh. I think one point she like I think at one point she used freeze, but then at a different point she used ice, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so she kind of got like a similar effect, but not the exact effect. You know? <laughs> so this is more kind of like artisan bespoke spell, right? Right. So she had on. to get really creative okay, with cool. with using. But I mean, as time passed, Nico just became a good mage in general, and she started using magic that that wasn't limited by the staff's powers, I guess. And I liked it. And I did. I liked it because it gave her upgrade. But I didn't like it because I was like, oh, it kind of breaks the magic system, though. You know. Um, but it was okay. still like they never really explained it and it's comics i you know they're not really the magic system you know uh standard or anything <laughs> especially with characters like right. dr strange or on dc side dr fate my god <laughs> there's there's not really okay. any um <laughs> there's a very soft magic system <laughs> in comics right okay. <laughs> yeah I mean, I guess it's a, it's it's all about the the influence of role playing games as well. But that that said, I think that that would make a really interesting mechanic in right. a role playing game that you can only use, you know, you can only use your magic once, uh, or you can only do each effect once. And it might be kind of interesting to play like, p- p- you know, play that character when they're like three thousand years old, and and they've kind of they've kind of done almost right, everything. Right, right. That 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 would be interesting, actually. Yeah. And they have a kind of version of a bucket list, which isn't the things that they they want, the ten things that they want to do before they die, but like the ten, the only ten things they can do. Right. Now that would, that would be very interesting because now you, now you have a mage who's three thousand years old, who can't use the, the spells that people would think a, a very old mage would be able to use. Um, yeah. But- and then you have you give you give them a perfectly standard quest, but they have to get through it. And <laughs> right, and, he, and he's got to use. But so he's always like, and the, the fun thing in the storytelling would be that you don't tell the reader up front that this mage can't do always, but he's always using like these outrageous spells yeah. to, to solve a problem. Why did he use right. <laughs> You know, <laughs> you know um, that that would, that would actually be pretty pretty freaking interesting, actually. <laughs> uh, and in the next scene where ravens would have been very appropriate, like, where are the ravens? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. You gotta use ravens at some point. <laughs> Catch the next episode for part two of this conversation.